16 minutes it is after 8 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. It's our shop stewards corner that we go into now and uh, 1.8 million workplaces uh, in South Africa according to the latest count. And uh, the big question as we uh, near uh, the reopening up of the South African economy under level three, we ask ourselves, uh, is it going to be possible uh, for the inspectorate uh, within the Department of Employment and Labor to inspect every workplace to ensure that uh, they comply uh, with the occupational health and safety directives aimed at preventing the spread and transmission of COVID-19. Well, Karen Runciman uh, seems to think not, and uh, she is an associate professor at the University of Johannesburg, and uh, she uh, joins us on the line now uh, to uh, maybe share why she thinks uh, employers, uh, notwithstanding the uh, incessant uh, calls for the reopening of the economy and the commitment that this is going to happen on a safe basis, she's feels that um, they are quite notorious uh, for shirking their occupational health and safety obligations. Uh, uh, Professor Runciman, good evening to you and welcome. Good evening and thanks for having me. Uh, Prof, let's maybe start off here. And uh, I think, you know, it might be helpful for uh, all of us uh, just to hear from you what uh, perspective you draw from some of the, what I call, incessant calls and demands by uh, a business in South Africa, at least the organized voices of a uh, big business, for the reopening of the South African economy. And uh, implicit in those calls uh, has been their suggestion that uh, they have all of the building blocks in place and the resources needed to ensure that there's a safe return uh, to factories, to uh, retail shop floors, uh, and many other places where people apply their trade. Well, I think when we look at what the Department of Employment and Labour tells us themselves about what's been happening under the conditions of of lockdown, um, what they have reported is that nearly 40% of employers have been non-compliant with occupational health and safety under the conditions of lockdown. And this is actually to be completely expected because even under normal conditions, the levels of non-compliance amongst employers Uh, for occupational health and safety, as well as a number of other issues like paying UIF contributions for workers, is actually very high. So it's not surprising that under the conditions of lockdown, employers continue not to comply uh, with the law when they don't actually do that under normal circumstances. But what's very concerning is, given the extraordinary circumstances we find ourselves in, the Department of Employment and Labour has not been more proactive in their approach So whilst they've been very busy telling us how many inspections they've been doing, it's now over 3,000, in the first 30 days of lockdown, they only conducted uh, one inspection every two days because they've only used 170 inspectors when they actually employ 1,800 inspectors. Um, So there's a real problem there. Mm-hmm. And and I, th- I mean, if if you, as you say in, in the piece that you wrote in the conversation, if if you look at the record of uh, many employers and uh, meeting their obligations even during normal conditions, uh, on that basis, you're suggesting if you add to that the you know the weak, uh, I guess, uh, muscle of the enforcement, uh, um, you know, work of the inspectorate within the Department of Employment and Labour, you're suggesting that this. Uh, is probably a very sort of ill-considered move to open up workplaces like this uh, without having the uh, a compliance and enforcement muscle in place. Absolutely. I mean, I think there are questions here about why the Department of Employment and Labour has not been using the full capacity of its inspectorate, 
whilst we might obviously take into consideration that not all inspectors would be trained in occupational health and safety, I think given the circumstances that we're facing, there's obviously a need for the Department of Employment and Labour to do more. What's also concerning is that the Inspector General herself has said that their approach to doing inspections under lockdown has been relying on workers themselves making reports about non-compliance. And this is, of course, very important. Uh, Workers do have the right to uh, report their employers if they are not following uh, the occupational health and safety as well as any other uh, labour laws that employers are expected to uh, comply by. But of course, given the particular circumstances that we find ourselves under uh, the uncertainty in the economy, many workers will be too afraid to uh, report their employers. So this is why it's really important that the Department of Employment and Labour is proactive in its response. It cannot wait for workers simply to report. It must actually be actively going out and inspecting workplaces, which means it needs to be using more than 170 inspectors to be able to do that. How many? 170 is what the minister has told us. Okay. And that 23 minutes it is after 8 p.m. It's our shop steward's corner. And we're taking a look at the state of readiness of many workplaces uh, uh, as we, uh, I guess, uh, get to level three of the lockdown over the next few days or so. And I'm joined on the line by Associate Professor at the Centre for Social Change at the University of Johannesburg, and that is Karin Ronsman. And uh, Professor Ronsman, uh, uh, my apologies, uh, of course, uh, for uh, how I guess uh, we cut you off there at the end. Uh, we saw a spot break nearing on us. But uh, uh, let's maybe come back to that figure because uh, I, I mean, I guess that figure pales in uh, uh, comparison to the number of workplaces that we have. I mean, 1.8 million employers, and uh, we have how many, uh, in, I guess, inspectors within the inspectorate? We have um, uh, approximately 1,800 uh, inspectors. Um, which is actually in, in line with ILO recommendations yes. around the numbers of inspectors that we should have. Um, but as, as, I, as I've, I've been raising, uh, there are big concerns about um, the productivity, in a sense, of these inspectors. Mm. If they've only been doing one inspection every two days under the conditions of lockdown, when, of course, most places of employment were actually closed, it's really concerning about the extent to which they'll be able to uh, continue to do inspections at the level um, that we need. And of course, um, this will put workers' lives at risk if, as we see, employers continue to flout um, the health and safety regulations that they must be putting in place in their workplaces. And, and, and I mean, I guess, Karen, the other question is, you know, in this kind of context where there's a deluge of suggestions that our economy is taking a massive beating, uh, you know, uh, uh, projections coming through of uh, contractions in our GDP of, uh, you know, uh, anything between 6 and 7% in negative territory. Uh, I guess one understands the allure for policymakers of uh, all of these calls and these pushes for the reopening of economic activity. And then you add to that the taxman saying nearly 300 billion rand or, or so is said to be lost uh, from uh, the kitty that finances all of these social investments that we need. Um, you know, how do we respond to that? Is it just a matter of saying, well, uh, if you can't open up, then keep it shut? Or is it about saying we probably need uh, more shoulders to the wheel and more resources put to bear to ensure that all 1.8 million workplaces uh, have uh, the necessary occupational health and safety standards to reopen on a basis that is safe for many of those who work in those places? I mean, I think, unfortunately, what, what we face is because the Department of Employment and Labour's inspectorate in a sense, hasn't been particularly functional in the past. It now has a huge challenge in front of it 
to become functional under you know a time of of extreme crisis. Um, and and as you're pointing out, obviously many workers will be extremely keen to to return to work almost under any circumstances because of the financial strain that they have been taking during lockdown. But of course, that that desperation is in a sense the very problem itself, right? Um, that people are forced back to work under unsafe conditions and conditions that will put their lives at risk. And this is where, contrary to what our president left us with yesterday about us being in our hands, actually, you know, and something like this about occupational health and safety, this is where it's so important for the state to be proactive, to not leave it in the hands of employers who have demonstrated that they will not put in necessary or large numbers will not put in the necessary health and safety precautions. Mm. And we cannot also not means that it's on the, the lives of workers themselves to be uh, uh, reporting. Of course, they have the right to report and they should report. But if, as I've mentioned, there'll be many workers who will be scared to report and be risking their lives in the process. Karen, thank you very much for your time. And uh, we'll certainly be watching quite closely how uh, some of these developments unfold in uh, many workplaces uh, across the length and breadth of our country. And I certainly hope that, uh, um, you know, uh, the very, I guess, Maybe ominous is the word. The ominous picture that you've uh, painted uh, certainly doesn't uh, uh, or isn't borne out in reality. And notwithstanding, I guess, uh, you know, how um, uh, all of the building blocks for that uh, reality to exist are already in place. Karen, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. Karen Runciman is an associate professor at the University of Johannesburg speaking to us this evening for our Shop Stewart's Corner. In the next few minutes or so, we take stock, we commemorate uh, the shifts and the movements uh, of uh, the anti-colonial struggles that got us to a point where we realize that if we don't unite as a continent, uh, that uh, the interests of other people outside of our continent will continue to play each of us off against each other. And uh, I guess that was the thinking behind coming together as the likes of Kwame Nkrumah, uh, Haley Selassie and many others uh, coming together in the early 60s to uh, uh, put together the Organization of African Unity. And I, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, that task is not over. And I would encourage many of us to uh, go back to some of those debates and uh, not only think of Africa Day as uh, the day for us to wear all of those colorful threads, the kente cloth and many other things, but to give content uh, to some of these struggles. And uh, in so doing, really uh, try and make sense of what all of this means uh, with where we find ourselves now. Uh, the big question, Africa, African continental free trade area and many other things, confronts us, which is how do we facilitate the free movement of people, goods and capital across the different borders that uh, weren't drawn by us, uh, weren't drawn by us by any stretch of the imagination, but we defend them with our lives. And uh, to have that kind of conversation alongside a conversation that recognizes the contemporary challenges uh, of uh, issues like xenophobia that have taken root in many of our communities. So on this day, yes, it might be an opportunity for some to celebrate and uh, to reflect on how far we've come. It's also, I think, a perfect opportunity for us to reflect on some of the shortcomings of uh, the early promise and the early excitement and expectations that many of the first generation of our leaders had. And um, I guess as the... Um, People of uh, Mozambique uh, often say, Aluta continua. The struggle continues. <laughs>